Welcome to this podcast of the Climate and Local Government series, in which I interview specialists and mayoral candidates for the coming local body elections in October 2022. I'm Lindsay Wood from the climate strategy company Resilience Limited, and in these interviews with mayoral candidates, I present them with four identical questions, plus I offer them a fifth chance to uh, magic up a climate policy with a climate magic wand. So in this case, we're listening to Ali Cook. I will pass you over to the full interview. Thanks, Ali, for joining us for this interview. The first question is on decarbonisation. It's four years since the IPCC 2018 special report signalled a decarbonising trajectory of a daunting 7.6% year on year from 2020 if we're to be compatible with a 1.5 degree C global warming limit. It's three years since our Zero Carbon Act legislated for commensurate responses, and with subsequent lack of action plus regional growth, it's now close to 10% reduction every year. If elected mayor, what would be the key strategies you would put in place to optimise your community's chances of successfully decarbonising at such a formidable rate and on an ongoing basis? Okay, well, it's a big question, and I think one of the things, and I'm just going to spout right out how I feel about um, climate change as a whole, is that it is a personal responsibility. Each one of us has a personal responsibility to down the amount of carbon that we're using. Now, I decided a long time ago that I was going to take that personal responsibility. It started with my eating habits. Uh, if we don't like dairy farmers actions or people on dairy farms um, stop eating dairy, you know, uh, like so I became a vegetarian and a vegan for the sake of the environment and that's part of taking responsibility. By the same token, we have to try and reduce carbon emissions individually and as a group and as a, a community. But unfortunately, the carbon emissions that come from New Zealand are nothing like what comes from other countries. And so we have to think about um, how do we change the impact of that as well? Now, that that's where your way of living, when you think about every little piece of plastic, I say to people, look around your table and look at every little, look at the lipstick case here or this plastic little bottle that I'm shaking in my hand. Nearly all of that is made in countries that are huge emitters of pollution and carbon into the atmosphere. So it's about living life in every way. Use less plastics, use less, you know, reuse things. Uh, all of those things contribute to not only um, to the carbon emissions in general, but the carbon emissions that are in other countries that we are not responsible for. So we can do things like encourage people to, to get electric cars or drive electric cars. We can encourage people to look at things their, their own way and their own way to reduce their own carbon footprint, but also how do we reduce the carbon footprint where we live in the places that are really producing the carbon? And I mean, I know my experience from years of traveling internationally, uh, flying into places like Tokyo and Taiwan and China, and you're flying through layers of, of, of pollution. 
Yeah, so um, personal responsibility, but thinking personal responsibility within your own space of carbon emissions, within part of New Zealand's carbon emissions, but also thinking personal responsibility in your everyday items that you use and the carbon emissions that have been ejected into the atmosphere from another country. I think that's really important. You know, people need to think about that uh, as a whole as a whole thing, not just what I do locally. Yeah, that's me. Great stuff. Thank you for that. I'm sorry you got two interruptions in that answer. My apologies for that. Not good form. No, it's all right. Really, really interesting answer. I'm having. I'm like a kid in a candy store with all of this series and everything. I talk to all these people about stuff that's sort of um, dear to me, and it's fascinating to hear yeah. what people say. So thank you. That's cool. You have to roll on to the next uh, question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The next question is on our energy future. We're among the most energy profligate societies in history, and much of our greenhouse gas emissions comes from fossil fuels, with transport emissions around 94% of individual emissions in our region. Decarbonizing our energy sector is a key to decarbonizing our economy, but the logistics are daunting. Electrification of almost everything, New Zealand being especially vulnerable to global supply chain issues and the net energy gain of all renewable energy sources, except good hydro, being inadequate to sustain our society in its present form. What do you think the energy future of the region will look like in 25 years? And what would you advocate to prepare our region to make the most of that energy future? Again, I go back to the person, the one person, the personal um, choices over energy. So I would like to see us as a country encourage more solar, all new builds have solar on the roof, um, working towards uh, clean energy as much as we can on a local basis. Mm -hmm. And the same with water preservation, actually. You know, like I live in a fairly self-sufficient sort of spot. I have my own water. Nobody takes my effluent away. Nobody brings me any water. I have solar, um, you know. So it's sort of like making that affordable for people, I think is a really important way forward to actually bring that forth. Um, and solar on a huge scale can actually can actually be really successful. Um, I have seen that traveling through Australia and Alice Springs where the entire town, I've been out to the solar plant there where the entire town is powered by solar. So it, it is possible. But again, I think that it's the individuals in, in that encouraging and helping individuals to be able to get into having solar power on their roof. I mean, we're the sunniest place in New Zealand. Every roof should have solar on it. If every roof had solar on it, our, our energy use in our region would be so low. So I think that that is really important, is to harness is to harness what's there and be focused on on the creation of clean and green energy. I just think it's I just think it's important to make each individual household uh, be as self-sufficient as it possibly can. And you can do that on an eighth of an acre section by having solar on your roof, by having mm. tank water that collects water. There's lots of ways to be more self-sufficient, and that that's really important. We need self-sufficient communities. Thank you very much. Great, good stuff. The next topic is a just transition. There's a sardonic joke about sea level rise that the poor get moved and the rich get seawalls. 
while expert Belinda Story would suggest that might not do the wealthy much long-term good either, the real point is that disadvantaged people normally become even more disadvantaged as a result of upheaval or crisis. In a climate context, there's frequent reference to striving for a just transition, but global evidence suggests that is largely an unfulfilled aspiration. If you were elected mayor, what would you like your legacy to be in the area of just transition and climate responses, and how would you go about achieving that? Big question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm very much, I'm living out on the coast of Tasman, so I've been very much um, part of knowing what that's like when the sea is threatening you. And I think to a certain extent you can build sea walls, but, um, you know, even even in that, even in the engineering of that, I've seen sea walls that were built at Ruby Bay and the sea picked up rocks <laughs> and threw them like missiles through the sides of houses, you know. So if you're going to build sea walls, you know, use big rock, you know, don't use small rocks that the sea's going to pick up and toss. Um, so you can do that to a certain state, but there is going to be there is going to be a retreat. I mean, it's pretty obvious that going forward in the future, there's going to be a retreat and it's going to be, and people are going to need support through that. They're going to be financial support. They're going to need emotional support. You know, it's going to be a big upheaval um, and we need to be looking forward to doing that. But then in the same token, this week, this last week, we've seen a, a large weather event in Nelson and it got me thinking that everybody keeps saying to me, oh, you live on low-lying land, you must be worried about sea level rise. And I've seen houses sliding down the hills. So what are we going to do? Put people up on the hills and their houses, their new houses are going to slide down. Um, so, yes, right. uh, you know, there's an open worry there now when I look at that and I think, gosh, people on hills are going to suffer from climate change just as much mm. as me living down in, in the low point. You know, um, and of course... If you're wealthy, it's probably not your only house, so it's not going to be your worry. And it is going to be, I believe it's kind of like the middleman that's going to be in trouble. You know, it was like Christchurch earthquake when it happened. Everybody that rented, hey, they just packed up their van and they left. And it was the people with the mortgages and the broken mm. homes that were actually stuck, that were in the middle. Um, yeah, I think it's very much the, the people, if, if there's climate change and you don't own a house, you're actually going to be the lucky guy. You're going to be the guy who can pack up your belongings and go somewhere else. Uh, if you're the wealthy guy, you're gonna. It's gonna have been your holiday home, or your second home, or your third home, or your fourth home. And hey, I've got somewhere else to go. If you're the middle guy that's paying mortgage and trying to keep your, that's the person who's gonna be in the most trouble. Rather than I think, rather than the person that doesn't have a property. Mm. Uh, I think it's the middle. I believe it's the middle person that's gonna be in the most trouble. Um, but going forward, I think just encouraging good stormwater infrastructure. I've seen that round here with Tasman and, um, you know, big culverts, open drains. Um, one thing I'm advocating for is Waimea County Council used to come round yearly and clean out all the ditches on people's property and then use that material in roading. Um, mm. And so that stopped when Waimea County Council went. And what's happened too is that the gravel levels in these creeks and ditches fill up. And then when there's a weather event, they can't take the volume of water. And so that's something that we have to, we've been pretty good at with TDC, but we have to get better at as the infrastructure 
to allow the water to actually escape, you know, and get out when it does rain. Thank you. Great. And uh, I, I'm looking at a water channel outside my place right now, which testifies to what you're saying. Well, not quite. It's not a Waimea council problem, but it's a drain that's filled right up with gravel and stuff. So I know exactly but what you mean. It's, it's yeah. a big thing. And because that didn't, I mean, that didn't happen for years and years and years. And I had major flooding here. So I experienced it mm. and fixed it was going from I've got a I've got a stop bank with a um with a floodgate in it, right? Mm. And so what happens on my property and affects the entire village here of Tasman. If my property fills up, those houses across the road are in trouble. Wow. So I can appreciate what going from a pipe that size mm. to a you know to a 1.5 meter pipe and floodgate through the through the stop bank and what scraping 300 you know cubic meters of excuse me, material out of the bottom of the creek by the council when they did come and do some work, what a difference that made. And yeah, now fascinating. We, had other, we had other work as well that happened. So that infrastructure works really important so that when we do have severe weather events, the big open drains and everything can take it. And I think what's happened in Nelson and what's happened in subdivisions is a lot of the natural flow of the, understanding the natural flow of the water where the water goes when it floods and people have built over the top of where the natural mm. water actually mm. goes and and not having that infrastructure under the ground to cope with that and hello she carves her way out because you know water will carve her way out no matter what um so yeah it's it's not a, um this is a little bit of an aside because we're we've run out of time on that question but yeah. It's not only in Nelson and Tasman either. I was presenting at a climate conference in Berlin a couple of years ago. Yep. And um and one of the people came, we were talking about this sort of thing, and one of the, the the sort of international gurus was describing exactly that, that all the engineers come up with a solution, they don't talk to the locals about where the water goes. You know? and, that is, and that is exactly what I'm worried about with three waters is that mm. is that years of farming knowledge and knowledge on properties will be lost because mm. it's not run at local level anymore. And and you really understand, you know, I know when the Tasman stream breaks its banks further up, I know it's going to come through the back of my property. It's mm. not going to go mm. down yeah. that way, you know. So it's sort of like you know where the water flow goes. So the fourth question is evaluating the cost of climate initiatives. In reports dealing with climate-related initiatives, there are often comments such as a particular course of action not being cost-effective or not making economic sense, and yet there is almost never reference to the time frame being considered and almost never comparisons with the cost of not taking action, which specialists like Lord Nicholas Stern highlight are generally orders of magnitude greater. This is often exacerbated by imbalance of high upfront costs being needed to realise longer-term benefits. Over what timescales do you think the costs and benefits of climate actions should best be evaluated? And if you were elected mayor, how would you reconcile the often unresolved conflict of prioritising funds now for benefits over a much longer term? 
I think we have to be constantly actually looking now at climate change and that is upgrading infrastructure, looking at what will happen into the future with developments, new developments, how we go about them, learning from what is actually happening in the current weather events, um, just much of what we've just talked mm. about, drainage mm. infrastructure, et cetera. Um, we have to prioritise now. Um, it, it, it is, you know, people talk about the COVID is nothing compared to climate change, right? What's happening on the planet is mm. is the biggest thing out, and unfortunately, that's been a sideline for climate for mm. climate action. Really, everyone's been worried about COVID, but you know, climate action is a bigger climate change is a bigger issue than COVID will ever be, and so we need to. We need to prioritise funding into improving infrastructure, into looking at the way development um, is being done um, around infrastructure and what happens in weather events in those particular places um, and looking long-term at the retreat processes, which is probably more at a um, central government level than a uh, mm. local government level. Prioritise funding for, for infrastructure um, for, for continuing to upgrade our infrastructure in Tasman. And I think we've done, like I said, I think that's, you know, been done pretty good, you know, but um, we didn't use all of our engineering money, is my understanding. Like, so we should be actually out there just looking at every culvert that we can make bigger, every pipe, referring drains, fixing stop banks. Like right now, the stop bank obviously broke on the mm. river. So, um, you know, so obviously there's a problem there, which has filled up, filled up the planes the other day. So, mm. you know, all of that, all of that stuff is really, really important for climate change and for coping for people being able to cope with severe, the, the increasing severe weather events that will happen, mm. um, you know, coming forth. So um, I think that, yes, we do need to prioritise any of that infrastructure that actually helps us not be in the situation now that Nelson's actually currently in um, with infrastructure issues that have not coped. Mm. I don't think anybody ever expected that to happen and maybe it's given everyone just a little bit of a wake-up call of, of what we're in for. Um, I, I'm, you know, here personally, I'm, you know, I was sandbagging and it missed us, you know, but it's like I saw that with Westport, you know, it missed Westport this time, but because of last time, they were so much more prepared. Um, yes, that's right. They know what can possibly happen. Prioritising for infrastructure for severe weather events has to be a has mm. to be a priority, and infrastructure for, for climate change, basically, uh, as much as we can until it gets to a point where we do need to do that managed retreat, which mm. which will come in the in the coming years. It will. Unfortunately, you're right. Thank you for that answer. That's great. Thanks so much for engaging with the questions I've posed. Kindly now imagine that you've been gifted a magic climate strategy wand. If your candidacy is successful and you could conjure up any other single climate-focused council strategy you wished, please tell us what it would be and why you see it as important. Oh, let me get hold of my witchy wand and think about that for a second. Um, I would, I, I would just like to see people put lives in the climate before business, and I mean that is the. Uh, unfortunately, 
money and business are the things that kind of like make people what's the word um pull the reins back on on ex on acceptance of what's happening it's a big thing to accept but this planet uh has done this for millions of years it's gone from heat to ice age and to everything else and we've helped speed it up with our behavior you know so we've got nobody to blame but ourselves but if i could if i could strike the wand and and do something good it would be to make people go take it seriously uh and a few weather events like we've just had will do that um so not that i wish for that but but people have to take it people have to take it seriously it, you know they have to take it seriously if, if that's if that's what I could wish for, it would be that sort of. Okay, well let's let's go to let's go to diesel and vehicles and trucks and things because we haven't really spoken about that. My son's a truck driver, so I have a bit of insight mm. to that. Um, and people think that the the cures are simple. You know, we're going to get electric trucks. Well, that's not simple. We don't have the infrastructure in this country for that, and they don't exist. So we've, you know, there's lots of people working on great technology, but we're yet to find a, a B train truck that's electric that we can bring here that we can operate. The other thing is hydrogen trucks they've been looking at. And like my son's, this was my son's thing on a hydrogen truck, right? It's fantastic, but we don't have the infrastructure. And with our roads like they are, and I've just travelled the Lewis Pass, which is completely ruined. It is the most revolting drive now because it's actually so bumpy and the road is so ruined from the earthquake driving the trucks over to the Lewis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the Lewis has been ruined, right? He said that's like driving a bomb on a bumpy highway. <laughs> and he said, I wouldn't want to be in one because you're highly flammable and it's just it's our roads aren't built for, built for hydrogen mm. trucks. So there's real huge infrastructure issues with the dream of being totally electric, you know? And mm. then there's the other side of that that worries me with the electric cars is the lithium mining and the cobalt mining, which are creating massive pollution as well. So there's kind of... Um, there's issues on both sides of the coin I see, but one of the bigger issues is that it's money over, you know, like, I mean, why is our coastal property still worth so much when it's going to wash into the sea? <laughs> I, I, you know, like, it's kind of like people aren't recognising what's coming their way. And like I say, it's really down to people recognising it. Um, and I think like I say, those few weather events, they'll start when it starts to affect mm. people and they go, woo, you know, we haven't had a, a metre of rain fall like that before. So, you know, it's kind of accepting it, actually accepting it. And and you see, accepting it means, you know, less profit, doesn't it? So it's like it's a profit versus, um, versus the climate and Mother Earth's a lot bigger than any profit. No, I don't know what it is to convince people, but I believe that it's important to convince them. And I believe it's important for us to have social cohesion. That is mm. something else that I'm really, really worried about. And that's a more recent thing, is that the COVID strategy itself has caused division in our communities, in our families, in our friendships. And when that's in the city, it's not so bad. When that's in small communities where there's that much division in people, that doesn't create social cohesion. And what do you need in times mm. of disaster? You actually need social cohesion. You actually need people to work together and um, 
to support each other instead of like, oh, you know, they're not vaxxed, I'm not going to help them while they drown. Mm. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you can't have that. You've actually got to have communities that are together. And that's the one thing as mayor I want to do. I want to bring our communities back together. I want to do it. And I know it's all of that is happening at, at central government level, but the cohesion and the and the healing of our communities, that, that begins at community level and local government level because that's where we are. We're here mm. with division in our, and I don't like the division that I'm seeing in our communities, families, friendships. It's it's uh, painful and it needs to be repaired. It needs to be repaired for the sake of climate change and severe weather events and being cohesive as a community. The lack of cohesion in our community is an elephant nobody wants to talk about. Mm. Nobody wants to talk about this elephant in the room because oh, you might be an anti-vaxxer or you might be, a, mm. you know, you get accused of things if you speak or question. You know, even with the dairy farmers, with everything, people, you know, I see people whinge about, you know, farming and, oh, farmers are this and farmers are that. And I go, do you think your meat actually comes out of a plastic packet? Mm. That's, do you think that's where it comes from? No, it doesn't. Mm. Yeah, if we all went vegetarian and vegan, this is, that, that, the, the emission from cows would be all over. They'd stop breeding them. They they'd would, move yeah. Into hemp. They'd move into hemp farming, and you know, which is sequestering carbon mm. really well. You know, we'd move into other things. We, and and it wouldn't break the farmers. They'd just change. Yeah, you know? and they'd go through a they'd go through a, a difficult patch. But we're all we're all going to go through a difficult patch. It's just that they're doing right. it first. It, it's yeah. It's personal responsibility makes all the difference. Anyway, I will let you go on that note, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Bye. Ta-da. Well, sorry about that rather abrupt uh, ending to the interview with Ali Cook. I'm not quite sure why our dialogue <laughs> got a little bit haphazard there at the end, but I very much enjoyed talking with Ali, as I did with all the mayoral candidates, and I hope you got something out of that. So this is Lindsay Wood signing off from this uh, in this interview. The other interviews we're having, in case you're not sure, are with the other Tasman candidates of the current mayor, Tim King, and then Mike Harvey, who's a new mayoral candidate, Richard Osmiston, and then in, from the Nelson area, we're interviewing Rowan O'Neill Stevens and Matt Laurie, the mayoral candidates that didn't step up to be interviewed, even though they were invited, were Kerry Neal, Nick Smith, Tim Skinner and John Wakelin. And then Maxwell Clark said he would be interviewed but didn't make the interview time. Now, as always, I will give you details of how you can listen. Um, and the best bet for you is to go onto the Resilience website at www.resilience, that's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-Z, resilience.co.nz, and there you will find links that go to the podcast page where there's a whole lot of information and a whole choice of podcasts for you to listen to. And on that note, I will thank you for your company. I hope we enjoy it again for future podcasts. And as always, kia kaha for the climate.